Welcome to the podcast of Harvest Baptist Church in Harvest, Alabama. We invite you into our sanctuary as we dive into God's Word with our pastor, Dr. Al Perringer. If you have your Bibles this morning, turn with me to the uh, book of Revelation, John's, uh, John's Revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we're going to be in uh, chapter 2, verses um, 12 through 17, and uh, it looks like uh, I'm going to get a little bit of a head start on the ladies. Well, actually, I've been um, uh, working through the letters to the seven churches for a little while now, because last year, uh, the Explore the Bible curriculum that uh, uh, the Southern Baptist Convention puts out um, had this series on uh, the church that God desires, and um, I... uh, Uh, taught that lesson in a life group as a substitute, and, uh, you know, the Lord just laid it on my heart at that point to um, um, study the seven letters to the seven churches. Um, When I did that Sunday school lesson, I I was going to uh, preach the next week, and in the middle of the week, while we were in Nashville, Tennessee last summer, uh, the Lord changed my mind, and so that's when we started with uh, uh, the letter to the church at Ephesus. And so the intent of the study was to see what it is that Jesus desires for his church. And so Jesus has given uh, the church uh, through, uh, through all of Scripture, you know, we have uh, indications of what uh, kind of church that Jesus desires. But in this case, he wrote seven letters to churches that were in Asia in the Roman Empire. And so we're going to study those to see what he said to those churches and then see how that applies to us today. And so, you know, this, it may take me another year or two to get through this, depending on how often I have the opportunity, but this is the third, and so I am making progress, and, that, and that's a good thing. You know, it's good to study this to see what Jesus has said to the churches, and so we're going to see, you know, that sometimes people will say that the Bible has nothing to say uh, to what's going on in the world today. And if we look at the churches that are shown to us in Scripture, uh, I think that we can see that they were dealing with the same things that we deal with today. They were striving to be faithful. They were facing persecution when being faithful. They were dealing with false teachers and dealing with idolatry, dealing with immorality. And so we will see in this message uh, to the church at Pergamum that Jesus speaks to all of these subjects. Now, before we move too much further, just want to give a quick reminder of the setting of the book of Revelation. Uh, the Apostle John has been exiled uh, to the island of Patmos. And so one Sunday he was in the Spirit, he was worshiping, and he sees a glorified vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Lord tells him to write these things down that he says. And so part of that in this first part of Revelation in chapter 2 and 3 are these seven letters to the seven churches. And so now I want to kind of set the stage for Pergamum because that is the uh, church that we, the message, the letter to the church that we will be looking at today is Pergamum. And so Pergamum was said to be the provincial capital, if you will, of the Roman Empire in Asia. And even though this title was also claimed by Ephesus and Smyrna, we can gather that because the proconsul, who was, who was the governor, if you will, uh, of the region, uh, the, uh, the governor there had been given by the Roman Empire the power of the, swor- of the sword, meaning that he could 
you know, execute anyone at will. And so this kind of indicates that Pergamum may have been the true uh, uh, seed of government in, in that part of Roman, uh, of Roman Asia. And so Pergamum was the chief center of uh, emperor worship uh, in, in Roman Asia. The first temple to Augustus was built there. There was also uh, a temple of Zeus there that had a very large throne as part of the complex. And so there were other gods that, that uh, the Romans worshipped there, uh, Athena, Dionysus, and Asclepius. Now, uh, Asclepius was known as the god of healing and had a serpent uh, for a symbol. And so it, it is true uh, that what uh, the, the preacher said in Ecclesiastes, that there's nothing new under the sun because Moses used a serpent on a staff to heal uh, the children of Israel when they had uh, uh, been groaning and complaining. And even today at a medical doctor's office, you see a serpent on a staff. And so sometimes the world is just uh, uh, very good copycats. Um, Pergamum had a large library. And they, the people of Pergamum wanted their library to rival that of the one that the great library that was in Alexandria. And so this indicates that they had a great level of learning and that there were a lot of exchange of ideas in that city. Now it's interesting, uh, a little side story, that Pergamum tried to hire away uh, the librarian from Alexandria in order to develop uh, uh, their uh, library. So in retaliation, uh, the king of Alexandria cut off uh, their supply of, of papyrus which was used to write things down on. So the, per uh, the people in Pergamum, they developed parchment. And parchment, as time goes on, and as the, the canon of the New Testament is being developed during this time period, it was parchment that, those, that the scriptures were, were most likely written on, or at least at some point they went from parch to parchment because codices, which was the predecessor to uh, books, uh, had parchment in them as they bound those things together. So that was just an interesting note of just how uh, uh, Pergamum you know, was a very learned, they, they had a lot of knowledge, they learned a lot of things, and there were a lot of world philosophies uh, that were being discussed there. And so all of this adds up to the situation that the church at Pergamum faced. You know, they were facing a direct confrontation with the idolatry of the time and the place that they lived they would encounter false teaching because of the learning and exchange of ideas in that city. Uh, Ephesus faced false teaching, and Smyrna dealt with idolatry, idolatry, but Pergamum faced both. And so the church in Pergamum must choose how they will respond. And so these choices, the choices of the church and the choices that are later offered by the Lord Jesus Christ, make up the message of this letter. Now, even today, we are confronted with choices to remain faithful or to fall for false teaching, uh, to fall into idolatry or worship the only, the one true and living God, uh, to repent when we fail or to face the judgment that will come from God. So this morning, I want us to read uh, Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, and we will, uh, we will walk through this uh, passage together. If you would stand with me in reference to the reading of God's Word. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. 
Yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some to the hold, who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on, on the stone, that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let's pray. Father, our desire today is is to worship you uh, in spirit and in truth. And as we come uh, to the time where we look at the truths of your word, uh, we ask that you send the Holy Spirit to open our eyes uh, to see the great truths of your word and to challenge us uh, where we need to be uh, challenged uh, to... uh, Comfort us where we need comfort. And, all, and at the end of the day, give all the honor and glory to you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, in this passage, we're going to see that Jesus has the authority to judge the, the church when it makes uh, these choices to turn away from him and from faithfulness to false teaching. Uh, and that we I guess it keeps me from walking around, right? <laughs> um, you know, if we turn you know, from Jesus uh, to false teaching and to worshiping idols, but you know, he will lovingly warn us to turn back to him and to hold to faithful teaching um, and to turn from idolatry. And we're going to see also, uh, we're going to look at the choices that the church made and then the choices that the church uh, was offered by Jesus Christ. And finally, you know, there's always hope in the scriptures, and we're going to see uh, the call and the uh, commitment that Jesus makes to those who are faithful. But first, uh, the authority of Jesus to judge the choices of the churches. This should not be surprising. In Revelation 1, uh, it was said that Jesus, in the image that John sees, that Jesus was in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, which represent the seven churches. And so Jesus is always with his church, and he knows exactly when it is faithful and when it is not. And he also has the authority to determine what is best for his church and turn it back to faithfulness. Jesus is the head of the church, and it is he alone that determines what the church does and what it teaches and how it functions. Uh, But this doesn't just apply to the church alone. Uh, Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. Revelation, uh, Matthew 28, 18, all authority has been given to me. Jesus is omnipotent, all-powerful. The sword of his mouth that was mentioned indicates his power, particularly the power of his word. 
Uh, John 1, 3 says, All things were made through him. Jesus, the Word, created the universe and everything that is in it. Jesus says in verse 12 that he has a two-edged sword in his mouth. Now, the two-edged sword was developed fairly quickly after uh, people began to figure out how to make swords as weapon. And, you know, it was a two-edged sword that could cut in any direction, and it could cut with deadly power. The sword that Jesus wields is his word. It's a, and as we will see later in this passage and throughout Scripture, it shows that he has ultimate power, that he has a kingdom that cannot be defeated, even if you are dwelling in the midst of the most powerful empire that the world knew at that time, like the Roman Empire. All things will be brought under his authority when Jesus returns. Also, Jesus is omniscient. That means he's all-knowing. In each of the seven letters to the churches, Jesus states what he knows about the churches. Now, we talk about mothers having eyes in the back of their head. And I'm sure that each of us could recall a time where we had done something wrong. We know we have done something wrong. We have tried our best to cover it up and to keep that being, from being seen by anyone. And yet, mother always knows. And so the fact that Jesus is all-knowing, that is a much bigger reality than the fact that mothers have eyes in the back of their head. Jesus has all the knowledge of the past, the present, and the future. There is not one thing that happens on this planet or in your life which he is not aware of. There is no escape from the depth of the knowledge of Jesus. Jesus knows all about your sin and mine. He knows what we have done in the past and what we will do in the future. And yet, He offers us mercy and grace when we turn to Him in faith. He knows where the church at Pergamum dwells and that, what choices uh, that they have made. And, the thing, and that brings us to uh, the next point uh, that I want to point out is the choices made by the church. So here are the circumstances that, that led up to their choices. They led in a, in a they dwelled in a city that was the center of idolatry in their area of the Roman Empire. They had great knowledge, and they had and they were faced with trying to discern what was uh, God's truth from all of the false teaching and the world philosophies that were around them. Verse twelve says that they know that he that Jesus knows that they dwell where Satan's throne is. Now, this may be a reference to that large throne at the temple of Zeus that I was talking about, but it's also worth remembering that the center of, uh, of Roman rule in that area was Pergamum. And there were times uh, when, when the Roman Empire in Scripture was, was um, defined by the, term, the use of the term uh, Satan when Christians would write to one another. Now, since Pergamum was the provincial capital, it may have been more difficult for the church at Pergamum to uh, deny the authorities than it would have been in other places like Ephesus and Smyrna. You know, they would be, you know, every time they turn around, be forced to try, uh, people would want them, the authorities would want them to just burn a little incense uh, to the emperor or... Uh, you know, you can worship uh, another god or two. You can have Jesus, but just, you know, add one or, or two more gods to that and in order to remain a good citizen. And so if the, the city of Smyrna 
was mostly confronted with the people there around them shunning them or, or locking them out of businesses or employment because they would not bow the knee uh, to the idols, uh, to the emperor or to any other idols. But in Pergamum, they were confronted with the full authority of the empire. So, what did the church do? Well, some chose faithfulness. Jesus says that some did not deny my faith. They remained faithful to him and did not submit to the authorities who wanted the church to you know, just add a little bit of emperor worship or something else to Jesus. No, they knew that Jesus' demands are all. Uh, keep in mind that you know, in Roman culture, uh, if you wanted to keep worshiping uh, your God, um, as long as uh, you would worship theirs, they didn't have a problem with that. But they had a huge problem because Jesus demands all or nothing. You, if you choose to follow Jesus, then it, everything must change in your life. We, in, we as Christians know that we belong to another kingdom that is not of this world. And even though we are to do well for the city in which we dwell, it is not our permanent home. It is time that we remember that our all-powerful, all-knowing Savior determines what we believe and also those who, uh, and also he has placed in authority all of the governments and leaders that we have. There is nothing that falls away from his knowledge and from his will. Jesus points us to the example of Antipas. Now, who was Antipas? Uh, we're, we're not real sure uh, who he was. He's only mentioned here. Now, there are some sources that say he may have been uh, the first martyr in Asia. If Stephen was the first martyr in Jerusalem, uh, then Antipas would have been the first martyr in Asia as the church uh, spread out to different regions uh, of the Roman Empire. Um, so uh, he chose not to burn incense to the emperor or to bow the knee to a false god, and it cost him his life. Antipas was put to death because he didn't deny the faith. And the Lord describes him as a faithful witness. And now Jesus is described in, in Scripture as the ultimate faithful witness uh, because of the love of God and of the plan of redemption. And Jesus uses this term, faithful witness, that is his, to describe in some way uh, the, uh, the actions of Antipas that he did not deny the faith and he paid for it with his life. Jesus also repeats that this is the place where Satan dwells. And so the church at Pergamum, it represents one kingdom, the kingdom, but there's another kingdom because of the church that's in their midst, the kingdom that Jesus inaugurated at his first coming and will complete when he comes again. And so wherever there are two kingdoms uh, joined together, living in the same place, uh, it is easy to see why there would be conflict among those kingdoms. Uh, and so during some of this conflict, some were faithful, but some chose to believe false teaching. Some of the church chose to follow the false teaching and may have decided to burn just a little incense uh, at the altar of the emperor or of a false god, uh, one of the gods of the empire. And so also, the teaching of the Nicolaitans were, were present. Um, 
and as well as uh, that Jesus refers to uh, the teaching of Balaam. Now, uh, the story of Balaam and Balak is found in Numbers chapter 22 through uh, 25. And so just to kind of uh, set the stage of the story here, Balak wanted to curse Israel because he had seen what God had done uh, to the Amorites. And so uh, the, uh, the nation of Israel is passing through the Moabite territory, and so he is concerned, and so he wants the, the nation of Israel to be cursed so that, that he would be able to defeat them. And so he hires the prophet Balaam, who agrees to come and to curse Israel for a price. And this is often what is referred to in Scripture as the way of Balaam, which is gaining money or power through wrongdoing that affects others, and oftentimes using the Word of God to do it. And so God would not allow Balaam to curse the people. So instead, uh, uh, Balaam tells, the, uh, tells Balak how to... Uh, trip up the nation of Israel. And what he said was, you know, you go to them and make a deal that they can marry um, your daughters and, and your sons will marry their daughters and you'll all intermarry, which God has, uh, as we know, uh, he forbid that. They'll all intermarry and eventually they'll turn in, in your direction and worship your gods and, and eat food that's sacrificed to idols. And that's exactly what happened. And that they, the nation of Israel after they intermarried uh, with the tribes that had been left around them in the promised land, they turned to false gods, and it affected them for the rest of, hi of the history that we see in the Old Testament until they were taken into captivity hundreds of years later. And so the teaching of the Nicolaitans, as I said, was also present. And we don't know very much about their teaching, but from all indications, it involves some form of sexual immorality. There were some in the church at Pergamum who had followed the false teaching and, and it led to idolatry and immorality. And it's not much different than what we see in the world and even in the church today. An idol is something that you give first place in your life instead of giving that first place to God. And so what are the, what are the idols, if you sit here and think for just a minute, what are the idols that may be in your life that you've put as first place in your life instead of putting God first in your life. Uh, you can't look at the news today and, and, and not see uh, stories of immorality uh, in the world and even in the church today. The church as individuals and as one body must repent of false teaching that has brought these things, the idols and the immorality into our midst, and turn back to Jesus because we're now going to see the choices that Jesus offers to the church. In verse 16, Jesus tells the church at Pergamum that they have two choices because either way, the issue of false teaching and idolatry and immorality is going to be dealt with. The first choice that Jesus offers is to repent. What does it mean to repent? It means to turn from one direction and then turn into another direction. And so here's a, an example of this. Uh, often I have to travel to Louisville uh, for school. And so you get on I-65 and you head north. And then you get to Nashville. And when you arrive in Nashville, you would think that I-65 is a pretty straight line. But 
When you get into downtown Nashville, there are about four or five different merge maneuvers that you have to make in order to get through the city and to stay on I-65. Now, uh, Denise will let you know by verification that I am directionally challenged. And so I am thankful that I live in a world today where we have Google Maps, and Google Maps is my friend. I did not grow up in the age where you had a Rand McNally. Now, students, you may not know what a Rand McNally is. You may have to ask your parents or your grandparents what I'm talking about. But trust me, it was not the same. And I am thankful even though I'm sort of old school, I, I'm thankful for, for GPS that tells us where we're going because trying to make those maneuvers could be difficult. And if you don't make them in the right sequence, you'll realize you're going in the wrong direction. And what do you have to do? You have to turn around. And sometimes when you make the wrong direction, like in Louisville, it'll cost you money because they have toll bridges. That's a foreign concept down here, and I'm glad for that. But anyway, you have to turn around. And so that's a, a picture uh, of uh, repentance. Now here's an example uh, from the Bible. The story of Jonah demonstrates uh, repentance. So uh, Jonah is directed by God uh, to preach to the city of Nineveh. Now Jonah doesn't want to do that. He goes in the other direction. He goes in one, he goes in the opposite direction. And so God uses a series of circumstances in the life of Jonah to change Jonah's mind. Jonah spends three days in the belly of a whale or a big fish. Uh, and then God, you know, after some time, uh, repeats his command to go and preach to the city of Nineveh. And so Joshua repents and says, okay, I'll go. He turns back in the direction of Nineveh. And so I'm going to use just a little bit of, of holy imagination uh, if you will, uh, to kind of set this picture of Jonah walking to the city of Nineveh uh, to preach to it. Uh, in many of the great cities of the ancient Near East, uh, the city leaders would often gather at the main gate of the city, and they would sit around and they would talk about the news of the day and their families probably, and, and they may make decisions um, for the, the, the city. And so these leaders... They're sitting there all around the city gate. And off in the distance, they see this guy walking, or they, they see a guy walking, and he's walking toward the city. And when he gets up to the city gate, um, he, they see him, and he is not in the best shape at all. But he keeps walking, and so he walks, the Scriptures say, about a day's journey into the city. Now, these city leaders who might have been sitting at that gate, they were probably concerned about this fellow. They didn't know who he was, and he didn't look to be in the best shape, and he might bring a bad element into town. So he might have told, they might have told people along the way uh, to keep an eye out on this guy. He, he might be nothing but trouble. And so then he walks a day's journey into the city, and when he gets there, this is what he says. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, to put it in shorthand, Jonah told the city of Nineveh to repent. Now, if you picture in my mind what I'm thinking Jonah must have looked like after he's been in the belly of a giant fish for three days, and he walks into the middle of your city and says, Repent. You know what I would do? I'd repent. 
And that's what the people of Nineveh did. They said, yep, we'll repent. So that's a, a biblical example of how individuals and communities, nations, cities, uh, repenting and turning back to God. Now Mark tells us after Jesus' temptation that he began to preach. And in Mark 1.15, he tells us that this was the message. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. When Peter preached to the crowds in Jerusalem, they were convicted of their sin, and they said, what must we do to be saved? And Jesus, the, uh, Peter, the first thing that he says to them is to repent. And there is a need today for the church to turn back to the Lord in repentance. For too long, we have let the teaching of the world influence us rather than the, uh, than the Bible influencing us. We need to hear the word preached with authority, and we need to study it ourselves individually and learn to call false teaching exactly what it is, lies. It is time to repent and say to the world, thus says the Lord. We, need, we have let idolatry creep in among us. We place possessions, activities, and things ahead of the Lord. We need to invest our time and our money and our abilities in the things that will return the Lord to his proper place in our lives and be about the mission that he has given to the church instead of being about the things of the world. And that mission calls us to take the gospel of grace and mercy that is available to us because of the love of God through the, through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ to take that message around the block and to the nations. It is time to repent. And immorality is all around us. Some in the church today uh, fall for all sorts of ideas about relationships that the world has to offer. And those false ideas often gain a foothold in the church. Now, God has drawn a big box around intimate relationships between men and women. And the only thing that is, honors and glorifies God is the thing that is in that big box, which is marriage. Marriage between a man and a woman. Immorality affects us personally, it affects our families, and most importantly, it, dishonors the it is dishonoring to the glory of the Lord and our witness to the world when it creeps into the church and sits in the pews. And it's often practiced by people who we have a great deal of respect for and find out that they have fallen into these false teachings about idolatry and immorality. Therefore, church, it is time to repent. Jesus tells us that the, church is, that the church in Pergamum has another choice. And if they fail to repent, the second choice is that Jesus will war against the false, te uh, the false teachers and judge those that have allowed the false teaching to remain. When it says, verse 16 says that if it, the church doesn't repent, he is going to come soon and war against them. It's the same, he says he's going to war against them with the two-edged sword of his mouth, the two-edged sword of his word. And with all of the power and the authority that I, that I described earlier that that represents, Pergamum had the power of the sword. And those that did not comply with the idolatry and the false teaching you know, were killed uh, for their faith like Antipas. But Jesus is mightier and has more power than the sword that the governor of Pergamum had. And, then, and this reference to Jesus coming soon is not a reference to the final judgment at the end of this age. This is Jesus acting 
to intervene for his church in his providence to root out the false teaching, idolatry, and immorality that has infiltrated his church. He did it back then, and there is going to come a time, if it hasn't come already, that he is going to do it today. Jesus will judge those who have fallen for this false teaching, idolatry, and immorality. And he also will judge his own church for allowing it to happen. And we see the results of this today. Look at how many churches have fallen into accepting these things and that, and that they have allowed it to continue to happen. And so the image that we see at, at the beginning of Revelation of Jesus walking in the midst of, of the lampstands that represent the churches, that hasn't changed. He is still among us today. He sees and he knows. He has the authority to act. And his actions will cause the witness of the church, if the church does not repent, to be snuffed out like the candles that it represents. Are we seeing today that the compromising church, compromising churches, may be having their candles snuffed out? Repentance is the choice that the church must make, that we must make. As we repent, we need to be thankful for faithful leaders. They teach us to discern. They bring us conviction when they preach. And the Holy Spirit uses the word of the Lord to change us. We need to be thankful that God is going to protect His honor and His name and judge those who fall into um, idolatry and immorality and false teaching. And He will judge the churches that allow it to happen in their midst. The holiness of the name of the Lord and His glory in the world demands it that the, that the, that the Lord uh, bring back honor and glory to His name so that it is not diminished uh, in the world. Now, Jesus has this power and He has the authority to carry, that, carry it out. And um, war with the Lord Jesus Christ is not something that we want to face. Uh, because ultimately a war with the Lord Jesus Christ, if he comes with the sword of his mouth, with the sword of his word, and he judges us and judges the churches, uh, it is a war that we and that no one can win. His kingdom is everlasting, and there is nothing that can prevail against it. If necessary, if we do not repent, he will come quickly, and he will act to preserve the honor and glory of his name. God does not change. Uh, Jesus equates the sin of the church in Pergamum with the sin of Balaam, as we have seen. And it's interesting to understand that Balaam did not repent of providing uh, this uh, instruction to Balak so that he could trip up the nation of Israel. And later we learn that Balaam was killed by the sword. The judgment of God will come uh, if, we will, if we fail to repent because we have the text of Scripture that explains to us what the Lord has done in the past and what He has done in the past, every prophecy that He has made, He bats a thousand, to use a baseball analogy. His prophecies are perfect. Uh, the and so lastly, I want to provide hope. And that is the call and the commitment that Jesus makes to the church. Uh, the call that Jesus makes for the church to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The Holy Spirit applies the truth of Scripture to our hearts, and when we listen, and when we turn, 
uh, because we have heard, we have, we have studied the Scripture ourselves and we hear the Word faithfully taught, the, the Holy Spirit can apply that and change our hearts. God calls us to choose which side we will be on. Like when Joshua was getting ready for the, for the children of Israel to cross over the Jordan to go into the Promised Land, Joshua says this to the nation as they're about to go there, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods of your fathers, serve beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so the Spirit's calling us to heed the words of the Lord, and we need to make a stand today that no matter what, we as people and as the church, the collected individuals together, we need to stand up and say, we will serve the Lord. Jesus also offers eternal life, which is the greatest hope that we have. The reward for faithful endurance is to spend eternity with the Lord. Um, the hidden manna that he mentions is, represents how God will sustain his people through the most challenging times because we saw the, how manna represented by how he sustained the nation of Israel when they were wandering. His word is faithful and his promises are sure. The other aspect of hidden manna is that it represents uh, a great banquet, the greatest banquet that there will ever be when the Lord Jesus Christ returns and we, those who have placed our faith and trust in him, are invited to sit down at the table with him and eat at that banquet. Uh, those who follow false teaching um, of how, uh, and, and they bow the knee to idols and they fall into immorality uh, will not share in the greatest banquet that they will ever be. And that is the choice that is put before us today. Whom will we serve? The white stone is given to those who endure. And it's a picture of, in some ways, of a, uh, of a prize given um, at the uh, end of the, of the games that they used to play. But it was also used at times with your name written on it as an invitation to come to a banquet of a king or, uh, or of a noble. And as we talked about, we have been given an invitation if we place our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to have our name written on that white stone, to have our name written in the Lamb's book of life and sit at the table with him in the greatest banquet that we will ever see and spend eternity with him. He gives us that new name. That's the name that's written down on that stone and in the Lamb's book of life. Um, it is the name of our new identity in Christ. We are no longer enemies of God, but friends. We're no longer outcasts, but we're sons and daughters. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, know that your identity has been completely and utterly changed. There is no other name that you need to put in front of yourself except for follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is time to remember who we are in the Lord, and it's time to remember that we need to stop claiming the identities of our past. And so I want to speak to you today if you don't know the Lord. Your identity can be changed. A new name can be given to you, son or daughter of the, uh, of the one and true and living God, and you'll receive an invitation to that great banquet. And so I just want to wrap up here with the question that comes from the choices 
of how we will respond. You know, I've talked about one. Turn to Jesus today in repentance and faith. He will not turn you away. And so during the invitation, I'll be down here at the front. And if you have never placed your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that today is that day. And I would love to speak with you about how you uh, can know the, the, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ and be invited to his banquet. Maybe you followed false teaching and put other things uh, in the first place of your life rather than God. Uh, you can turn back to God today. It only takes one step. Uh, so you may want to come uh, to the altar and pray and, 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 and confess these things. Um, you, know, you can pray where you are right now. There's nothing really you know, uh, magical, if you want to use that term, about coming to the altar. But we see in the history of Israel how they would make altars in the places where God had spoken to them for remembrance. And so sometimes coming to the front, if you need to do business with God to confess your sin or just to thank Him for His salvation that He gives us so freely, sometimes remembering that moment by coming to an altar, it puts it in your mind so that we remember and not forget. And so finally, as believers who are a part of God's church, both the church universal of all believers in Christ and as a local church, we need to pray for the church today. The church is a huge mess. We have tolerated false teaching. Immorality is all around us from without and from within. And sometimes we put, we put many gods, many false gods, in the place of the one true and living God. And so if the Lord leads, I ask you to come uh, and pray uh, for our church for the churches of the Southern Baptist Convention, for churches who believe in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ all around the world, that they would continue to be faithful and that they would, uh, and that they would root out uh, the uh, immorality and the false teaching that is in our midst and that, that He would give us discernment to see those things. So I ask you to come pray for that. The altars are open this morning and if God is speaking you to, to you today, I just ask that you respond as he leads. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Harvest Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online at harvest-baptist.org or find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. You can also find info on our children's ministry on Facebook at Harvest Baptist Children's Ministry or on Instagram at kidsquest underscore HBC. Our student ministries on Facebook at HBC Vertical Student Ministry and on Instagram at VSM underscore HBC. We welcome you to join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. We are located at 8999 Waltrana Highway in Harvest, Alabama. Thanks for listening and God bless.